Chapter Four of The Gloved Hand by Burton E. Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Don W. Jenkins. Chapter Four. Enter Freddy Swain. I fell rather than climbed down the ladder, snatched the white missile from the grass, and saw that it was indeed a sealed and addressed envelope. I had somehow expected that address to include either Godfrey's name or mine, but it did neither. The envelope bore these words. Mr. Frederick Swain, 1010 Fifth Avenue, New York City. If not at this address, please try the Calumet Club. I sat down on the lowest rung of the ladder, whistling softly to myself. For Freddie Swain's address was no longer 1010 Fifth Avenue, nor was he to be found in the luxurious rooms of the Calumet Club. In fact, it was nearly a year since he had entered either place. For some eight hours of every weekday he labored in the law offices of Royce and Lester. He slept in a little room on the top floor of the marathon. Three hours of every evening, Saturdays, Sundays, and holidays excepted, were spent at the law school of the University of New York, and the remaining hours of the twenty-four in haunts much less conspicuous and expensive than the Calumet Club. For Freddie Swain had taken one of those toboggan slides down the hill of fortune which sometimes happened to the most deserving. His father, old General Orlando Swain, had, all his life, put up a pompous front and was supposed to have inherited a fortune from somewhere. But when he died, this edifice was found to be all façade and no foundation, and Freddie inherited nothing but debts. He had been expensively educated for a career as an ornament of society, but he found that career cut short, for society suddenly ceased to find him ornamental. I suppose there were too many marriageable daughters about. I am bound to say that he took the blow well. Instead of attempting to cling to the skirts of society as a vendor of champagne or an organizer of fêtes champêtres, he, to use his own words, decided to cut the whole show. Our firm had been named as the administrators of the Swain estate, and when the storm was over and we were sitting among the ruins, Freddie expressed the intention of going to work. "'What will you do?' Mr. Royce inquired. "'Ever had any training in making money?' "'No, only in spending it,' retorted Freddie easily. "'But I can learn. I was thinking of studying law. That's a good trade, isn't it?' "'Splendid,' assented Mr. Royce warmly and there are always so many openings you see nobody studies law lawyers are as scarce as hen's teeth just the same i think i'll have a try at it said freddie sturdily there's always room at the top you know he added with a grin i can go to the night school at the university and i ought to be able to earn enough to live on as a clerk or something i know how to read and write that will help of course agreed mr royce but I'm afraid that, right at first, anyway, you can scarcely hope to live in the style to which you have been accustomed. Freddy turned on him with fire in his eyes. Look here, he said. Suppose you give me a job. I'll do my work and earn my wages. Try me and see. There was something in his face that touched me, and I glanced at Mr. Royce. I saw that his gruffness was merely a mantle to cloak his real feelings, and the result was that Freddy Swain was set to work as a copying clerk at a salary of fifteen dollars a week. He applied himself to his work with an energy that surprised me, and I learned that he was taking the night course at the university as he had planned. Finally, one night, I met him as I was turning into my rooms at the marathon, and found that he had rented a cubbyhole on the top floor of the building. After that I saw him occasionally, and when six months had passed, was forced to acknowledge that he was thoroughly in earnest. 
i happened to remark to mr royce one day that swain seemed to be making good yes my partner agreed i didn't think he had it in him he had a rude awakening from his dream of affluence and it seems to have done him good but somehow i had fancied that it was from more than a dream of affluence he had been awakened and now as i sat staring at this letter i began to understand dimly what the other dream had been the first thing was to get the letter into his hands for i was certain it was a cry for help i glanced at my watch and saw that it was nearly half-past twelve swain i knew would be at lunch and was not due at the office until one o'clock slipping the letter into my pocket i turned back to the house and found mrs hargis standing on the front porch i declare i thought you was lost mr lester she said i was just going to send william to look for you ain't you most starved scarcely starved mrs hargis i said but with a very creditable appetite when you consider that i ate breakfast only two hours ago well come right in she said your lunch is ready i suppose there's a telephone somewhere about i asked as i followed her through the hall yes sir in here she opened the door into a little room fitted up as a study it's here mr godfrey works sometimes thank you i said i've got to call up the office i won't be but a minute i found godfrey's number stamped on the cover of the telephone book and then called the office as i had guessed swain was not yet back from lunch and i left word for him to call me as soon as he came in then i made my way to the dining-room where mrs hargis was awaiting me how does one get out here from new york mrs hargis i asked as i sat down that is if one doesn't happen to own a motor-car why very easily sir take the third avenue elevated to the end of the line and then the trolley it runs along dryden road just two blocks over where does one get off at prospect street sir and what is this place called this is the old bennett place sir thank you and let me tell you mrs hargis i added that i have never tasted a better salad her kindly old face flushed with pleasure it's nice of you to say that sir she said we have our own garden and william takes a great pride in it i must go and see it i said i've always fancied i'd like to potter around in a garden i must see if mr godfrey won't let me in on this he spends an hour in it every morning sometimes he can hardly tear himself away i certainly do like mr godfrey so do i i agreed heartily he's a splendid fellow one of the nicest squarest men i ever met and a friend worth having he's all of that sir she agreed and stood for a moment clasping and unclasping her hands nervously as though there was something else she wished to say but she evidently thought better of it there's the bell sir she added please ring if there's anything else you want and she left me to myself i had pushed back my chair and was filling my pipe when the telephone rang it was swain swain i said this is mr lester i'm at a place up here in the bronx and i want you to come up right away very good sir said swain how do i get there take the third avenue elevated to the end of the line and then the trolley which runs along dryden road get off at prospect street walk two blocks west and ask for the old bennett place i'll have an eye out for you all right sir said swain again do you want me to bring some papers or anything no just come as quickly as you can i answered and hung up i figured that even at the best it would take swain an hour and a half to make the journey and i strolled out under the trees again 
then the thought came to me that i might as well make a little exploration of the neighbourhood and i sauntered out to the road along it for some distance ran the high wall which bounded elmhurst and i saw that the wall had been further fortified by ugly pieces of broken glass set in cement along its top i could see a break in the wall about midway of its length and walking past discovered that this was where the gates were set heavy gates of wrought iron very tall and surmounted by sharp spikes the whole length of the wall was i judged considerably over a city block but there was no other opening in it at the farther end it was bounded by a crossroad and turning along this i found that the wall extended nearly the same distance in this direction there was an opening about midway a small opening closed by a heavy iron banded door the servants entrance i told myself the grounds of a row of houses facing the road beyond ran up to the wall at the back and i could not follow it without attracting notice but i could see that there was no break in it it was almost certain that the wall which closed the estate on godfrey's side was also unbroken there were then only the two entrances i walked back again to the front and paused for a glance through the gates but there was nothing to be seen the driveway parted and curved away out of sight in either direction and a dense mass of shrubbery opposite the gate shut off any view of the grounds even of the house there was nothing to be seen except the chimneys and one gable evidently mr vaughan was fond of privacy and had spared no pains to secure it opposite the vaughan place a strip of woodland ran back from the road it was dense with undergrowth and i reflected would form an admirable hiding-place the road itself seemed little travelled and i judged that the main artery of traffic was the road along which the trolley ran two blocks away i returned to my starting-point and assured myself that the wall on that side was indeed without a break some vines had started up it here and there but for the most part it loomed grey and bleak crowned along its whole length by that threatening line of broken glass i judged it to be twelve feet high so that even without the glass it would be impossible for anyone to get over it without assistance as i stood there looking at it resenting the threat of that broken glass and pondering the infirmity of character which such a threat revealed it suddenly struck me that the upper part of the wall differed slightly from the lower part it was a little lighter in colour a little newer in appearance and examining the wall more closely i discovered that originally it had been only eight or nine feet high and that the upper part had been added at a later date and last of all of course the broken glass as i turned back at last toward the house i saw someone coming up the drive in a moment i recognised swain and quickened my steps you made good time i said yes sir i was fortunate in catching an express and not having to wait for the trolley we'd better go into the house i added i have a message for you a confidential message he glanced at me quickly but followed silently as i led the way into godfrey's study and carefully closed the door sit down i said and i sat myself down and looked at him i had always thought swain a handsome thoroughbred-looking fellow and i thought that in the past few months he had grown more thoroughbred-looking than ever his face was thinner than when he had first gone to work for us there was a new line between his eyebrows and the set of his lips told of battles fought and won a year ago it had seemed natural to call him freddy but no one would think of doing so now his father's creditors had not attempted to take from him his wardrobe a costly and extensive one so that he was dressed as carefully if not quite as fashionably as ever in a way that suggested a young millionaire rather than a fifteen-dollar-a-week clerk at this moment his face was clouded and he drummed the arm of his chair with nervous fingers 
then he shifted uneasily under my gaze which was perhaps more earnest than i realized you said you had a message for me sir he reminded me yes i said have you ever been out this way before yes i have been out this way a number of times you know this place then i have heard it mentioned but i have never been here before do you know whose place that is next door to us yes and his voice sank to a lower key it belongs to worthington vaughan and you know him at one time i knew him quite well sir and his voice was still lower no doubt i went on more and more interested you also knew his very fascinating daughter a wave of colour crimsoned his face why are you asking me these questions mr lester he demanded because i said the message i have is from that young lady and is for a man named frederick swain he was on his feet staring at me and all the blood was gone from his cheeks a message he cried from her from marjorie what is it mr lester for god's sake here it is i said and handed him the letter he seized it took one look at the address then turned away to the window and ripped the envelope open he unfolded the sheet of paper it contained and as his eyes ran along it his face grew whiter still at last he raised his eyes and stared at me with the look of a man who felt the world tottering about him end of chapter four read by don w jenkins rancho san diego california shaggybark.blogspot.com